Well, hello everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets of Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. Today we have a special guest, actually two. Replacing Caroline, who is running around Europe these days, is her colleague, Matt Simons, who also is a co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and a longtime, I would say, observer and participant in the business education, having been in charge of the very first Kaplan test prep franchise in Europe. And we also have with us again, uh, obviously, Maria Wick-Villa, who is the founder of Applicant Lab. And we have a special guest, special, special guest besides Matt, a Stanford MBA who just graduated uh, only a few weeks ago. And she wrote a very provocative essay for us called The Motherhood Penalty Starts in Business School. Uh, So I want to welcome Tamar Shamra Lips, who will talk about that essay and what it's like to be a mom in business school. And that will form the first portion of our podcast. The second portion, we're going to get into the new economist ranking. Matt has been a longtime follower of rankings, so I'm really eager to get his thoughts on this ranking. You're familiar with my own and Maria's thoughts on these rankings. We've talked about them a lot, but it'll be nice to have a new voice about them. So let's turn to Tamar first. First, uh, thank you for joining us. I have to say that when I first read your essay, I was totally immersed in it. I found it incredibly compelling. And let me tell you why. Even you thought that it would be incompatible for a mom to go through business school. And in fact, you said to yourself, you can't be a mom and do an MBA. And actually, your husband was the one who talked you out of it, right? Correct. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, John. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, you wrote the GMAT exam five days before, as you pointed out in your essay, a second miscarriage. In your first trimester of your pregnancy, you had your first quarter at Stanford. You gave birth in exam week. And in the same weekend of your graduation recently, you actually celebrated the one-year birthday of your child. What was it really like to go through this experience and probably be, I'm sure, the only person in your Stanford class pregnant at the time? Well, I would say it was a whirlwind of an experience and and a roller coaster. There were many highs and many lows. There were highs of wonderful friends, prize baby showers, lecturers being very understanding. But there were also lows of juggling it all, feeling very isolated. And just trying to find my feet in this whole MBA jungle whilst also being a mother and full-time recruiting. I can only imagine. Maria, can you imagine what it would be like? (laughs) Yeah, I can because actually several of my friends in business school either came in as mothers or became mothers during uh, business school. In fact, you know, especially uh, students from overseas would joke uh, one of my dear friends had a had a baby. She tried her best to get pregnant during business school for two reasons. Number one, she joked that MBA for her stood for making baby in America uh, in order in order to get. Yeah, well, seriously, like that child is given automatic citizenship and that is no small thing. You know, she said that that was worth more to her than the degree was, frankly, from sort of a long term immigration you know, potential perspective. And also, I mean, yeah, I, you know, the MBA is a lot of work, but it's also like, it's super 
it's super cushy, right? Like if you, I, you know, I, I was not pregnant. I, I am a mother now, but I was not at the time, but I remember I had like a health thing and I just went to my professors. I'm like, Hey, I can't do anything for like a week because of this health thing. And they were like, okay, cool. Like there was no, like there were no real negative repercussions. And so that's why so many of my friends, men and women had children during business school. And I felt like a number of, of people actually entered the class. Admittedly, more men were fathers and there were women who were mothers. Uh, yes, absolutely. But there were there were several people. I, I don't know. I, I think my section had maybe six or seven people who were parents. So out of a section of 90, you know, call it 6%. Like that's, it's not huge, but. No, but it's a lot even, larger than I would have thought. Yeah, no, there were a lot of people with kids. And so, and they also had like special housing. The students with kids got like, special access to special housing and there was like a little daycare center for the kid like so anyway so my friend my friend who who did have her baby um also at the end like as soon as she she's like as soon as we landed in august we started trying <laughs> to get pregnant uh, and she was like no this is great because she's like i don't you know at least i don't know i, I just don't feel that that business school is is it's a lot of work but it's also not a high stakes situation it's the you know so uh, the perspective from some people is that it was kind of the best time in their adult lives to have a child. Yeah. Now, Tamar, one of the things that you note is that one was one of your loneliest journeys ever. And I get that because there weren't other women who were in the mm -hmm. same boat as you were at Stanford. How, how did you navigate that journey, given the fact that it was so lonely? Yeah, that's a great question. So coming into Stanford, I knew that there would be very few mothers in the class but I didn't expect to be the only one one year into the MBA. So it was up to me to form my own community um, of mothers. And fortunately, as Marie pointed out, Stanford did give me family accommodation. So I'm in a courtyard, which is incredible, wonderful resources and surrounded by mothers. And I also had a few mothers in the executive program in Stanford. Um, but as Marie also pointed out, the majority of those mothers weren't also at Stanford studying. They were often the spouses of husbands who were doing the MBA or husbands who were doing the MSX or husbands who were doing the PhD. Um, but I did have to reach out and find my own community outside of the MBA to find people who could empathize a bit better. Now, Matt, you're a father to many children. <laughs> I, th I thought that was the British Prime Minister. <laughs> well, what are your thoughts about what Tamar went through? Tremendous admiration. Uh, yeah. We so often talk about the business school experience as life-changing, uh, transformational, you know, this personal and professional development and path. Uh, and yet what is more extraordinary than uh, parenthood for, for so many people? Uh, and, you know, we try to juggle work-life balance and the fact that uh, Tamar, um, you know, approached all of this with the joy. I mean, you described the, the, the highs uh, and, and the lows. So uh, great admiration. And, you know, very interesting as, as we think about, you know, the Forte Foundation of which Stanford uh, and HBS are, are members, the efforts that they've been making in the last 22 years to uh, drive or encourage more women to consider uh, business education. They 
the initial report that they wrote, the Gateway to Opportunity, back in 2000, you know, identifying these sort of milestones in people's lives uh, and, and how uh, starting a family um, could, you know, put so many of those business school plans on hold. So the fact that you said, you know, these are the things, plural, that I want uh, in life and, you know, grasped both of them with, uh, with both hands. Um, I think is uh, absolutely wonderful. I was struck uh, in the piece that you wrote, uh, Tamar, you know, talking about, uh, obviously we see perhaps in the, in the corporate world the efforts that have been made, um, you know, even as we look at gender pay gaps or um, maternity and pater paternity uh, leave options, um, but that possibly business school still comes up short, um, you know, even with five or six in Boston, uh, just yourself in Stanford, it's great that they provided the accommodation, but clearly an outlier. Um, and, you know, very interested to see, as you sort of concluded this experience, where you think that schools like Stanford and HBS can go next. Not everyone is going to be 25 as they start their MBA. The idea of starting a family, you know, that is concurrent to that. I mean, did you sort of have conversations with the administration based on that experience uh, to sort of think about how they could continue to evolve and provide greater support? I did. So I'll, I'll take you through a few things and a, and a few points. So I, I did have a conversation with the Assistant Dean of Admissions, Kirsten Moss, um, about the lack of mothers in the MBA. And a very interesting point that she said was, on average, Stanford has around one mother in the MBA class a year, which you would think is extremely low, a class of around 400, 450, that's not even half a percent. And it hasn't necessarily been a specific target area of MBAs. MBAs have gone to target international students. They've gone to target women, um, Black Americans, Asian Americans. But mothers are not a specific target group for MBAs. And I think that that translates directly into the information and the messaging of the admissions, of the application. For example, it's extremely difficult trying to piece together what it would look like to be a mother during the MBA when you don't have someone to speak to who went through it, or you don't mm. have someone from the student life office who can talk you through it. So it's a really quite a big black hole of information that's extremely daunting and makes you question your decisions. The other thing is the messaging by the admissions or the MBA consulting companies. As I mentioned in my essay, when I was thinking about writing an essay for a specific business school, speaking about one of the biggest challenges that I'd had in my life, that was going through multiple miscarriages. And the MBA consulting company told me not to put that in because business schools may question my commitment to studying if they knew I was also trying to start a family. And that was a huge concern because although that may not be one specific business school, because that was coming from an MBA consulting company, I assume that there is some truth behind it. And there is some reticence in admissions when they see mother or they see miscarriages or they see family planning on essays. And, and lastly is the resources. There are a lot of resources out there, but it's about accessing them. And it's about um, not just the accessibility, but actually knowing about them. So the one example I gave was the on-campus childcare. The on-campus childcare at Stanford is exceptional. It's 
such a wonderful resource that I'm lucky to be able to utilize. But the wait list can be over a year long and you aren't guaranteed on-campus childcare as a student. So I was extremely fortunate the week before I was started, um, I was due to start class again. We got off the wait list after 11 months. But without that resource, I don't know what I would have done. Um, so I think that those are a few things that can be done. Be- making mothers a specific target group, making sure that admissions weigh it positively in their decisions, and having accessible resources as well as the information available. You know, actually, Tamar, you raise an interesting question because both Matt and Maria, of course, advise candidates to help them improve their candidacies to a business school. Would either of you have had given Tamar the same recommendation that she not oh. mention? Uh, Absolutely her- not. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought you were done with your question. <laughs> Absolutely not. I was shocked when I read that in your essay, Tamar. I cannot imagine, you know, one of the one of the challenging things about our field, and I'm sure Matt would agree, is that there's no like licensing test for admissions consultants. Like, so you never know who's talking to you, like what their perspective is or what their experience is. First of all, I actually... I'm not going to say who, but one of the one of the mothers in the HBS Moms Club was, in fact, one of my clients. Um, and so, like, I've worked with candidates who talked about pregnancy and and childbirth and and all of that stuff in their essays. Uh, and also, I think admissions committees want to get to know the full people that we are, and to the extent that the parenting journey is a big part of that. It's a big part of most, not most, but a lot of humans' lives. Um, I can't imagine that business schools wouldn't want to hear that. And yes, lots of women, uh, you know, might not have babies when they're in business school, but I can tell you tomorrow within the next two to five to definitely 10 years, a lot of your female classmates are going to have kids and a lot of them are going to drop out of the workforce. And so I just, when it's like, oh, well, the business school might think that you're not committed to have like... In that case, they wouldn't let in any married women either. They wouldn't let in any women who still have functioning reproductive systems. Like a lot of women who go to business school end up having babies and they end up dropping out of the formal workforce. I mean, so I I just that part, that sort of perspective of it was just very strange because the reality is so different when you look at current, not only current students, but then what, what most, well, not most, but what a lot of women end up doing in the years following graduation. And if you follow that person's advice, how do you present a authentic, genuine self? Or is that a fiction? Matt? <laughs> um, I, I'm just thinking with, with Chad Losey, the managing director of admissions at HBS, you know, we both have four kids. We're both mindful of what it brings to our lives and obviously the, the, the place um, and, and, and how it uh, you know, really does uh, d- define the individuals that we've become. Uh, so I completely agree with uh, Maria when, when HBS says, you know, what more should we know about you or Stanford, of course, a very similar invitation uh, to really share a far more personal story. Um, that this is who you are. Um, there, there is, there's always that sort of awkward area, um, you know, applicants when they apply for jobs at McKinsey or Goldman or the private equity firm. And it's like, you know, don't tell them that you have a partner and you're thinking of having a family. Don't even let them know that there might be a golden retriever. A goldfish would be all because if McKinsey wants you to be billing 90 hours a week uh, and traveling across the country. So, you know, we've, we've created uh, all of these sort of scenarios of what we shouldn't say. Uh, and yet McKinsey, I think of BCG and their Women's MBA Fellowship and efforts that they're trying to um, you know, provide a, a far more healthy uh, working environment for people to 
pursue everything both professionally and their personal lives. So yeah, with the Maria, this this is so integral, you know, Tamar to, to who you are. And I assume, you know, with IV treatments and everything else, you know, the, the courage that you showed to go through that whole uh, area. So and I believe that the strongest admissions offices in the US and Europe um have the imagination and the understanding uh, to be able to contextualize all of that. Of course, you yourself described that, I guess, in uh, giving birth in uh, at the end of the first year and exams, then precluded from uh, you know summer internships and how that might have sort of helped to orient your career. I mean, did you feel that that did then have an impact because you were looking at the graduating job market without being able to leverage a summer internship? Well, I felt that it had a very positive repercussion because although I wasn't able to have a summer internship that could lead to a full-time job. When I did actually recruit four full-time positions during my second year of the MBA and people asked what I'd done for my internship, saying that I had given birth, or as I said, that I I had a full-time boss that demanded me 24-7, including weekends, and was still extremely demanding (laughs) coming out of my my internship. Indeed. It actually led to wonderful discussions. Um, and especially with people that I was interviewing with who were parents, their way of empathizing, their way of understanding it was wonderful. So I think it was actually extremely positive because of the conversations that it led to subsequently, even though it was harder that I had to recruit quite a bit during my second year, and I didn't have that offer coming out of summer. Also, if you believe what is taught in business school about the need to, to differentiate, you were clearly differentiated as a candidate. <laughs> yes, uh, very much so. Yes. Now, a question that I have to ask is, did Stanford know when you were admitted that you were going to have a baby in their MBA program? They did not. Um, I wasn't pregnant when I was admitted. And I went through IVF during my first quarter. So I um, I only became pregnant once I had already started the MBA. Right. Now, I, I imagine that given the demands, particularly in the core curriculum in that beginning year, and the fact that you had a baby during exam time, posed really significant demands on you in your time and your energy and just, you know, your headspace. I'm, I'm wondering if there was a moment where you had some remorse and you asked yourself, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> I think during pregnancy, unfortunately, you can't ask yourself that question because there is no going back. <laughs> and I would say that I was actually extremely fortunate because Stanford and the lecturers were extremely understanding. If I had to go to a doctor's appointment, I was a high-risk pregnancy, so I had many more scans than the usual pregnancy. Whenever I had to miss class or change a schedule for that, they were extremely understanding. Um, and even when it came to exams and I knew that I would be giving birth that week, they pulled forward the exams for me. I was writing exams a week before anyone else in the class would be seeing it. So I would say that there was definitely, it was definitely a juggling game, but Stanford really came through in that respect to assist. That's great to hear that they accommodated a very big and important special event in your life. Well, so so having gone through this, what advice would you have for other women who may, in fact, have a child in the middle of an MBA program? Hmm. The first thing I would say is that it is possible. 
that there's so many people out there who I would hope would apply for an MBA if they knew that it, it could be done. And it is harder. There are things that you have to prioritize compared to your classmates. But there's also that wonderful world of fulfillment um, and joy that you get from juggling it all. The second thing is reach out to as many resources as possible. Reach out to previous people in MBAs. They can put you in touch with the mothers in class. Reach out to the admissions office. Reach out to the student life office. And try and understand as much as possible what resources and what help is available to you when you're going in. And then go in eyes wide open and it will be a wonderful experience with a lot of um, exhaustion, <laughs> but you come out the other side smiling. If I may, you, you spoke ahead. earlier about you know, a lack of role models and, and uh, you know, very few precedents for you to yourself to, to be able. And I suppose yes. with Maria, you know, we, we talk with so many applicants about the business school experience. Um, it's great to see that close to 10,000 have read the piece on poets and quants. I think it's very interesting that there have been zero comments, and I wonder why there hasn't been greater discussion, but perhaps you'll have lots of people uh, reaching out. It published in the same week that Le Monde, uh, a French newspaper, ran a piece about a, um, a guy who grew up in the uh, in the suburbs in, in a region of France, uh, went through his uh, education system and applied to Stanford, and, and speaks about you know arriving at the farm and being overwhelmed by uh, the trips to Las Vegas, the international, I mean, we, we talk about, of course, a very vibrant and supportive community. And you yourself said that you had any number of offers of babysitting and, you know, that this networking piece taken perhaps to a whole new level of the, the support that you then received. And I suppose I wonder for candidates as they think about their personal journey, on the one hand, this guy that was daunted and said, you know, I, I, I didn't have the budget for all of these expensive trips. Others reading your story to understand it is possible, it's hard. Any advice in terms of you know, how candidates, as they think about their situations, it, it, back to resources again and, and just conversations that both the schools can be proactive to connect with people like yourself uh, so that they can get a better sense of the experience? Yes, so exactly that. I think it's just about reaching out. But the second thing that I would say is it's also about taking a step back and having your priorities clear. Mm. And the birth of my child was actually a wonderful catalyst for that because I was forced to prioritize much more than my classmates. So it meant that I had to know every single second of my time, every single hour of my day, where was that going towards? Um, and that exercise really stood me um, in good stead because it meant that I, I could say no to so many things and I could know what were the things that were so important to me that I would dedicate my time to that. And I think if that can be applied to everyone across the MBA, that's one of the top tips that I would give. Prioritize your time, prioritize what you want to get out of the MBA and go after that and learn to say no to 90% of things because it is overwhelming. Yeah, in fact, I wondered about the co-curricular part, which is often, you know, a, a fairly important part of an MBA program in terms of developing the bonds that lead to a strong network afterward and how, uh, whether or not, you know, you were limited in, in participating in, in some of those co-curricular activities as a result of your pregnancy. Mm, I definitely was. So some of the co-curricular activities of traveling or large gatherings, 
during COVID, um, I stayed away from. Um, I didn't want to be in large gatherings while I was pregnant or, or with a newborn. But what that led to was other things. I had very intimate interactions with the classmates that I did. I had one-on-one walks, one-on-one coffees. Um, I became a person that people would come to for advice about fertility, about childbirth during the MBA, about balancing things. So in a way, I was also able to form wonderful relationships in other ways, which were actually more suited to me. So I didn't partake in the big co-curricular activities that you would hear about in many MBA essays. But coming out, I think that I've got a phenomenal network of incredible friends and incredible relationships. Oh, that's great to hear. Maria? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think I think tomorrow, I, I actually think I, first of all, I salute what you what you went through. Uh, the IVF part of it is is actually, in some cases, you know, just as hard, if not harder than the actual giving birth. And, and, and you know, so I, I really do salute uh, your tenacity uh, in juggling all of these things. So I do think I and I'm not trying to be sort of like flippant here, but I think the silver lining is going to be number one. I was as before you even started talking about the the coffee chats and the and the walks. I was thinking, yeah, you didn't go to the parties, but so what? Like you're going to be at a party with 50 people that you speak to each person for 20 seconds. Like it's going to be. So, I'm like, oh man, it's going to be so much better if you if you had people come over and help babysit. So I just think like I'm like I feel like you probably came out of business school with more close friends than the average student. Uh, and I can tell you again, like I think the reason why there aren't a lot of mothers in business school is because I think a lot of women do want to become mothers, but a lot of them are just like, I'm going to get business school out of the way first, which is why on average women are younger in business school than men, right? Why women tend to apply a bit younger because they're like, well, I want to get the MBA out of the way. So that way I can I can get on to that next part of my life, which will involve baby making. So I think a few years from now, Tamar, when your friends from business school, all, not all of them, but many of them start having babies, I think you're going to be like, oh, I'm so glad I, I'm so glad I'm out of that phase. I'm so glad I don't have the diapers anymore. Uh, And just my (laughs) final words are, it just, it it gets easier. Those first three months are the, oh my God, I thought I wasn't going to, I thought I was going to (laughs) die. I was, and, and I can tell you, I'm I'm sitting right now, I'm on vacation in Europe. I'm in a hotel room. My 12 year old son is snoring gently next to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're sharing this hotel room. Uh, it gets so much easier. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I think in the, looking back, you'll be like, wow, I, I'm, I think your timing was actually impeccable is what I'm trying mm. to say. What I, what I would add to that um, is before I was starting to fall pregnant, I had a discussion with a female mentor and she said a line that has always stuck with me. She said, for women, there's never a right time to give birth, which means that it's always the right time. Because you're always just starting mm-hmm. business school or you're just about to start a new job mm-hmm. or you're waiting for promotion. So mm-hmm. it's always just, the right time and you can always do it. It will be hard, but any any woman can have a child anytime that she wants and get through it. Here you have it. Here, 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 here. And I think just the discipline that you showed in going through a demanding MBA program and, and doing really performing the only miracle in life, which is giving birth, is uh, is just momentous. I mean, it's just fantastic. It's an inspiration to many people. And for all of you out there who haven't yet read tomorrow's essay, look it up at Poets and Quants. It's called The Motherhood Penalty Starts in Business School. It's really a very sharp and intimate uh, and compelling essay on her journey 
through one of the most, well, the most selective MBA program in the world. Tamar, thank you so much. We also, I also should note that Tamar in September is going to work for a multifamily trust fund, sorry, investment fund in San Francisco. So you have a few weeks at least to just settle down and enjoy uh, your family, I think. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on this podcast, John. Thank you. All right, now we want to turn to the new Economist ranking. It came out last week, and as is often the case with The Economist, or frankly with any MBA ranking, there were a good number of surprises and shocks, and you'll be surprised to find out that one of the big surprises was that actually Maria's alma mater is number one. Now, why is that possibly a surprise? It's because in the history of The Economist ranking, Harvard has never been at the top of this list. Uh, number two is Wharton, three is Kellogg, four is Columbia, five is MIT. Then comes Duke, uh, HSA, Paris, Stanford, Chicago, and Michigan. Now, a longtime watcher of these rankings uh, certainly is Matt. Matt, what, what, what's your take on uh, this newest ranking by The Economist, which incidentally is quite late? I mean, typically, The Economist publishes its ranking in the fall. This is like eight months after. Uh, But given COVID, uh, given the reluctance of many schools to participate, the last time The Economist did this, uh, I guess the delay is understandable. Yeah, the last two years of of, of these, you have described The Economist's ranking of what? It was January 2021. It it was a marketeer's dream for so many of those schools. Um, We saw... Uh, 17 of the world's top schools, the great majority of them, the M7, the top US schools, and then uh, also the likes of INSEAD and London Business School that did not take part. I think that was already brewing. Uh, And of course, the work that I'd done with the Wall Street Journal as they looked at the ranking space and I had 256 conversations with the communications, alumni relations uh, representatives of all of the top schools. They they certainly didn't want to see more rankings entering into the space and themselves alluded to perhaps making some choices among the five uh, media rankings uh, that have dominated over the last 20 years. I mean, your comment about Harvard now ranking for the first time at number one, uh, perhaps sometimes we have to step away to come back stronger. Um, it's always been a roller coaster. I actually have great affection uh, for The Economist and its ranking, uh, because with the Financial Times, of course, they're the only two rankings that mix up things with schools from across North America, South America, uh, Europe, and um, uh, Asia. Uh, I'm trying to think if they have any African business schools in the top 100 list this year. I'm not sure that they do. Um, and of course, this idea and the candor that the previous rankings editor, Bill uh, Ridgers, he always talked about the futile exercise of comparing apples and oranges. But it, I like some of the areas that The Economist explores. You yourself as the as the godfather of rankings, John, with what you started in the late 80s at Business Week, of course, thought very long and hard about how to best take a snapshot of any given year and any given MBA program. Um, and I think that The Economist has got some great criterion um, one of the consequences, perhaps, you know, this is what can lead to so many roller coasters. So if we if we take out a pandemic and the fact that 17 top schools stepped away, which, of course, meant there were lots of double digit uh, movements, mostly upwards, I think 81 of the schools last year 
um, rose in the ranking. Perhaps that's going to be 81. Uh, I know that uh, in your analysis on poets, uh, you'll share with readers just how many have then gone down and again by double digits. Um, but it is interesting to see Harvard in there. And just a reminder for our listeners of you know the four areas that they're evaluating. Um, of course, there's salary. Uh, that's true of so many of them. Uh, Forbes looks at it in terms of ROI at the FT as much as 40% of the ranking that's based on salary. But The Economist also then breaks it down into um, opening up new career opportunities for which they look at the diversity of recruiters, um, the alumni rating of career services, which is often uh, I think overlooked and yet so critical to the experience. There's a whole category for personal development and educational experience. Sometimes th those numbers are hard to catch and it does lead to a lot of uh, alumni survey responses that lead to great shifts. And finally, potential to network. But I think for so many individuals as they think about an MBA and criterion that might matter to them, I suspect that those four areas are probably on a lot of people's list. Um, but you've often commented, John, of course, one of the things that is very unsettling to you is to see such big swings when fundamentally from what, 2018 to 2019, has NYU Stern's program changed that much? Has Georgia Tech so transformed things to jump into the top 10? I mean, what's, what, what's your take? You have a certain skepticism for the Economist ranking? Yeah, I, I guess the volatility bothers me because year to year, these programs don't substantially change. And the changes that are reflected in the, in the numerical ranks given a school can be quite sizable. Now, that's, that's a reflection of the underlying dynamic that uh, all numerical ranks are based on some sort of index number. And those numbers are so clustered together that tiny, minute, inconsequential changes that are absolutely statistically meaningless can factor into these rankings in a way uh, that makes outsized changes. And that's, and that's somewhat problematic. And, you know, people are fixated on who's number five and who's number 10, and who's number 20. Um, they're not fixated on the underlying index number that shows that a given rank could be quite meaningless um, in the scheme of things. And no one looks at the tiers. You know, the economist tries to break itself up by saying there's an A tier and a B tier and a C tier and a D and an E. Uh, but everyone is really focused on that number. And I guess that that's what troubles me. I do like the fact that they are still surveying uh, thousands of students and alumni. There are some problems in those surveys because, you know, there is a cheerleading aspect to them. Uh, if you're a student or alum, you know that the survey that you fill out will have an impact on how your program is ranked. You don't want to destroy your program, so you tend to rank it higher than it probably should be. Also, uh, the expectations of a student who goes to Harvard might be very different from a student that goes to Georgia Tech. And so those expectations are going to be reflected in, in how a given student or alum fills the survey out. Uh, so it's not completely apples to apples. But, you know, if, if you were doing your own research and you had the ability to talk to hundreds or thousands of students, you know, their perspectives to you would be helpful. So I think the fact that the economist is out there doing the hard work of gathering those opinions is helpful as long as, you know, you look at the data and you can... You can ask yourself, does it make sense? Does it not? And generally, over the long term, uh, the data makes sense. In any given year, it can be just a big anomaly. 
Don't you find that to be the case? Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about uh, at Centre Court and in other uh, situations you know, just how impo- important it is to understand the methodologies of any of these five rankings because you know, they, they are quite different. Uh, and you know what you've done at Poets and Quants, um, and I, similarly bringing all five of them, sort of amalgamating those results to perhaps then provide an even broader sense and an underlying stability. I think that uh, sort of the ranking of rankings can then uh, generate. Inevitably, you know, we always have that sense, what is it, sort of the, the wet finger in the wind, if we don't see the M7 in the top 10, is, is this ranking credible? Well, The Economist, with the results that they're publishing this year, you know, with Harvard number one, Wharton number two, I must say how surprised I am to see Stanford at number eight. Um, and as you sort of read along the line, you know, their um, salary, uh, they come in fourth behind Harvard, uh, behind uh, MIT and behind Columbia Business School. And I wonder quite how that result came about when Stanford, of course, for years has so consistently dominated um, those salary league tables. I think I also wonder how the schools can then use this themselves, not just for that marketing, you know, we're in the top 20 and we want to tell the world about that. But if you break down uh, the results for MIT Sloan, um, it's unusual for them to be in the top two in terms of salary. Um, they're, in, they're number one in terms of personal development and educational experience, uh, and they've got a solid score for opening up new career opportunities. You would expect all of that at Sloan. And yet, the fourth criterion sees them ranking 89th on the potential to network. And I wonder if the school then looks at this and says, hey, you know, we need to pull our socks up, or, or, or how did that come about? You know, if that's um, students or alumni now responding to the survey, why are they saying that the potential to network is relatively poor? Maybe it's still good, but just compared to others. Um, do you think that the schools do take the time to look at the breakdown results and sort of hold up a mirror to themselves and say, where can we do better? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, particularly, you know, schools that are not Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, uh, they're going to be much more uh, thoughtful about analyzing and parsing these rankings and determining, well, you know, what what's legit, what isn't. Um, if they see something that that's amiss, uh, I think they're going to address that. And you know, as we all know, all these schools have I would call them ranking gurus who do nothing but uh, submit data mm-hmm. and think about these things. And as much as the schools say they, uh, you know. They'll acknowledge that rankings are important, but they won't acknowledge managing to a ranking, even though that does happen at a good number of schools. Maria, I want to get you in on this discussion because you have strong views about the value of rankings in general, and the economists probably in particular, because of all the rankings, the FT, Business Week, US News, Forbes, a lot of people think the economist ranking is like the quirkiest of them all. Why don't you just give your take on the on the whole usefulness or not of rankings? Yeah, my my strong views on the usefulness is that they're not necessarily super useful, other than for collecting interesting data that would otherwise take you and be a real pain in the patooch to try to collect yourself. Uh, you know, I, I feel like long t- long time listeners of this podcast or listener, hi mom, 
will know that I am I am not. You know, I think a lot of these rankings are bunk. And because The Economist is so quirky, as you put it diplomatically, you know, with Caroline not being here, John, you've, you are now taking over the diplomacy, um, the ability to use euphemisms. Like uh, you use the word quirky. I would use the word wackadoodle, um, which is a hy- it's hyphenated. So it's actually one word. Uh, but yeah, it's like any 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 quote unquote ranking that has such wild swings from year to year. How can you possibly take that seriously? Uh, I mean, but it's great because, you know, hey, it gets us talking about them. It gets them clicks. You know, they do have some interesting ways to, to look at things. Um, as Matt pointed out. So I, you know, hey, the more the, the more the merrier, the more data out there, the merrier. But I just I wish they wouldn't do things in terms of a one, two, three, like forced rank. I, I wish they would just do general buckets because I do think it's ridiculous when when people start to stress out and they're like, oh no, like such and such school. Stanford is number whatever this year and I got in. Maybe I shouldn't go. And I'm like, of course you should go. Like what? <laughs> so that that's where things I think just get get crazy and, and this is why i've always said like i this is my this i know this is overly simplistic but like the app you know if you had to do a quick and dirty ranking it would just be like ask every applicant like do you have them force like where would you go if where would you most want to go like let's assume you got into this school a school b which would you pick school b school c which would you pick like almost like when you're at the optometrist and they're like okay which lens looks better one or two it's that sort of thing and then like where where would you want it where would you most want to go um, because yeah, I think that's do do that with students and do that with recruiters. Where would you most want to recruit students from? Not oh, I went to Stanford and nobody took me took any of my job offers, and so now I'm grumpy and I'm gonna say bad stuff about you know because <laughs> all these kids now they all want to start their own businesses or whatever. So I don't know. Like it's more like where would you want to go or where would you want to hire from? I would. That's what I would do, but. True. And, you know, in the market voice, as you point out, um, is super important because it tells you so much about who the well, the perception of who the best schools, what the best schools are. I mean, after all, yield, which is a percentage of admits who actually enroll in a program, may be the most revealing of statistics because it does tell you, look, if you're able to bag 90 percent of the people you invite in, Uh, That's really good. And that's typically what Harvard and Stanford tend to do. Uh, They tend to be at the top of the yield tables. The other thing is I want to go back to what Matt said about starting salary and how can it be that Stanford is where it is on this table. And I'll tell you why. It's because in many cases at Stanford, there are more people going into early stage companies and startups and starting your own company. And the truth is that if you go into a startup, or an early stage company, you're going to get equity. And a high percentage of Stanford uh, graduates do get equity right out of the gate. And if you're only looking at starting salary, you're only looking at one, actually could could be a small component of what an MBA will ultimately earn because you're eliminating sign-on bonus, you're eliminating guaranteed year-end performance bonuses, and you're eliminating uh, stock options and stock grants all of which are going to be more likely to accrue to people who go to Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton than they are to many other schools. And that would change the game entirely. So you're not even looking at first-year compensation. You're looking at a tiny slice of it in the case of a Stanford MBA, where uh, the portion of equity, the signing bonus, and the the year-end guaranteed bonus after your first year uh, could equal or even exceed your first year salary. 
And that's the problem with these rankings. You know, you you pick and choose what you think you can measure, or you avoid what you think you can't measure. And oftentimes what you can't measure is more important than what you can. I suppose to that, John, uh, I mean, it's maybe not at least five years now that Stanford has dominated the, um, the salary uh, league tables in the Financial Times, you know, that places um, 20% waiting on salary three years out, and then there's a 20% waiting on the increase in salary from when you began the program. And, and that's actually um, quite tightly aligned with how The Economist does it. You know, Forbes jumps in then with an ROI assessment five years out. So I was thinking, well, if Stanford has been such a consistent high flyer in the FT, how are we coming up with a different result, irrespective of all of those other aspects, as you say, that come into the reward structures uh, that these successful graduates enjoy? So that's an outlier. I do remember um, being at an EFMD conference, and we had this sort of um, the morning shift uh, panel with Della Bradshaw, uh, who, of course, had launched the FT ranking. And it was the night after the gala, everyone had been drinking. We're thinking, God, you know, there's going to be nobody in the room. Uh, what the hell are we going to talk about? Other panelists had dropped out. So we had about a three-hour slot. At the time, the FT was the only school that offered a master's in management ranking. And it was quite an interesting contrast to the five rankings that have now been around for a while uh, with the MBA. And you know, much as I haven't advocated just seeing a blizzard of other rankings for lots of different things, um, I did feel that um, the masters in management market was underserved, and there was the danger of having a monopoly. You know, if the FT was the only media that in any way took this snapshot every year, then you'd see this distorting effect. Because you know, as you've said yourself, I think we see it at the university level, particularly for the world university rankings of Times Higher Ed and QS and and Shanghai, um, just how uh, schools will organize themselves uh, based on sort of Anglo-Saxon collegiate models, uh, you know, to achieve strong results in these uh, league tables. I mean, do you think it's good to have a number of them and therefore, you know, we, we just end up with a mass, you, you take what you like um, so, so that, that we can avoid the, the monopoly and people always converging? Because at the same time, we just talk about the M7. When does Berkeley fit into that list? When does Yale squeeze into that list? You know, are they really uh, in any way inferior? There's a lot of protection in the market, and we play into that model with our M7s and what do we have, E5s and S7s or S10s. Um, it does feel that there should be more movement, and I'd like to be an industry where challenges, perhaps not on the year-to-year -year basis, as Maria was describing, but over a 10-year period, you know, a school that has truly been doing innovative stuff, um, you know, should be perhaps a, a top five school when we break away from this uh, M7 rigid description that we've used for too long. That's true. Uh, but, I, and, I, and you're right, I think competition is healthy. Uh, and, and as you pointed out earlier, one of the things that we do is we do a composite ranking, but we show you the latest rank for each school in the top five most influential rankings. And what that does is you look at that and you can see where there is consensus and where there is none. So when a school rises or fall, falls in an unusual place, and it's truly an anomaly among the other rankings, you know that you should discard it. 
And that, and our system kind of does that. And the other thing you can do that personally by looking across the five rankings and saying, well, clearly if four rankings believe this school is number five and one ranking believes it's number 15 or 20, it's really a number five. The other thing I'm going to point out is, you know, you mentioned the FT master's in management ranking and you were uh, expressing your view that it, you wish that there was more competition in that field because it's such an important degree. In fact, it's the number one management degree in all of Europe. And I'll say uh, that that would be very welcome because, you know, for years, the University of St. Gallen has been number one and everyone who's below it accuses St. Gallen of having a small intimate program uh, so that it's that it could literally get their hands in the data and make the numbers look exactly what they need to look to achieve a number one ranking in the Financial Times for that program because it's so small. Uh, so clearly more competition in that field would be helpful for people to make more informed decisions about uh, master's in management programs. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> do read our analysis. We uh, not only have the full story on who the big winners, who the big losers are, what the problems are with the ranking, um, what things you should discount, uh, what things you should listen to. Um, but we also have, of course, uh, what we often do, the 10 biggest surprises in any given ranking. Uh, and that story is on our site as well. I want to thank Matt for joining in uh, this week. He will be with us next week as well, because Caroline is taking a whirlwind uh, trip. Uh, Maria obviously is on a whirlwind trip uh, of her own uh, in Europe, um, but she's able to join us. And I want to thank Maria for joining. Uh, so thank you, Matt. Thank you, Maria. And thank all of you for listening. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. I'm